Today's scripture is from Esther chapter 6, verse 1 to 13. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Asuras. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on the Mordecai for this? The king's men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the, king, and the king's men told him, Haman is here, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man who is the king delights to honor, let the robes be brought with the king's the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and let him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returns to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered, and Haman told his wife, Jerishes, and all of his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Jairus, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have to began to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This is the word of the Lord. We pray with me before we jump into this text. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you haven't left us here to figure out life on our own. On this Father's Day, Lord, I want to personally thank you 
for my father and for the men in my life who have sacrificed so much to invest in me. They gave their lives away to help build my life up. And I want to thank you for all the men in this room who do that, often unnoticed, oftentimes uh, without a whole lot of thank you, whether it's for their own children or it's just in the lives of others. Lord, we're grateful for that. We also confess, Lord, or not confess, but we hold before you that there are wounds on this day, and there are different kinds of wounds. But Lord, I pray as we come to your word, as we come to this fascinating story, and as we contemplate what this story speaks to us and how this story intersects with the story of your son, Lord, I pray that we would leave here with a deeper knowledge of the love that you have for us, of what you've given us. Lord, we trust that your spirit is moving among us. We pray that he'll bring conviction and comfort and strength. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Esther chapter 5 and 6, chapters 5 and 6, we have in Haman one of the longest, most sustained case studies of pride in the entire Bible. And of course, it's Father's Day. And so it's fitting that we talk about pride on Father's Day. It's almost cliche, right? That uh, It's providential, though. It's what God had for us. So I'm just submitting to him in that. Um, this story, if you keep it in line of the whole story, it's, it's a really stern warning, but it's also a pretty funny story, that there's some real humor that the, the author tried to include here. If you're new to the Esther story, basically in chapters one and two, what happens is King Xerxes, uh, who's the king over all of Persia at the time, he grows tired of his first wife, and he has a beauty pageant, and this woman, Esther, who's a Jew, she wins the pageant and becomes queen. And her cousin, Mordecai, he's, he's older, he's almost like an uncle to her, Mordecai, he ends up serving in the king's administration. And at the very end of chapter two, Mordecai discovers a plot, an assassination plot that two of the king's servants are bringing against him. And so he tells Esther, who warns the king, they foil the plot, the kingdom, or the king save, the kingdom save. And you expect that Mordecai is going to get some great honor from Xerxes because of it, but he's not. He's actually forgotten until chapter 6, the passage we just read. And instead of him being honored, this man, Haman the Agagite, is promoted to the number two position in all of the kingdom. And Haman, being an Agagite, he was an enemy of the Jews. He disliked the Jews, and he was a really, really bad man. And so Haman, he gets promoted, and everywhere he goes, he commands people to bow down before him, and Mordecai is the only one who refuses. Now, this bruises Haman's pride. And so Haman decides that he's going to pay Mordecai back, not just by putting him to death, but by exterminating all of the Jews in every province and all of Persia. That's chapter three. Chapter four, Mordecai goes to Esther and he says, listen, you, you are queen. God raised you up for this moment. You need to go and intercede on behalf of all of the Jews in Persia. And she resists at first. She says, it's dangerous. I'd put my life at risk because you can't just go talk to the king. If you enter the king's chambers uninvited, he has every right to put you to death according to law. And they go back and forth. And finally, Esther, she says, all right, I'm going. And if I perish, I perish. Then in chapter five, she enters the king's chambers 
and the king holds out the golden scepter to her, which means that she's allowed to speak. And she says, hey, I have a request I want to make of you. And he says, you name it, whatever you want. She says, all right, but first, I want to make a feast for you. And so Xerxes says, okay. And she says, and I want you to invite Haman along. And Esther's being really wise here. She's saying, I'm going to give them a really good meal and a whole bunch of wine, and then I can make my request. So they come, they eat, they drink, they're happy. Xerxes says, all right, I'll give you anything you want, up to half my kingdom. And she says, well, if you really mean that, then come back to my feast tomorrow night. And if you show up to the feast tomorrow night, that will be proof that whatever I ask up to half your kingdom, you will give to me. And so Xerxes says, deal. See you tomorrow night. Haman leaves. He's feeling really, really good. He's going home. I mean, he just got to be on the inner circle of inner circles. It was the king and the queen and him. He's rolling home. And everything's great until he runs into Mordecai. He's walking along. Everyone's bowing down. And you can just imagine Mordecai standing there shaking his head. I'm not bowing to you. Well, this enrages Haman. But he restrains himself. He goes home. And I guess to feel better about himself, he calls all of his friends and his wife together. And he throws a party for himself. When we read about this in verse 11, we're told that when they had all gathered together, that Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king has honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Sounds like a swell party, right? You want to come to my party? I'm going to recount everything that's great about me at this party. Then he goes on and he says, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also, I am invited by her together with the king. Yet, all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all of her friends said to him, let a gallows, uh, and this is probably, it's a hard word to translate it, but it probably means a stake that you would impale someone on. Let a gallows, 50 cubits at 75 feet high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So that night, Haman's instructing his servants, needs to be 75 feet high, needs to be the tallest, you know, impaling spike in human history, and Mordecai is going to go on it. And so as he's working through the night on this, Xerxes can't fall asleep. Just so happens. And because he can't fall asleep, like many people, he's like, you know what, I should probably read. And he says, you know what, he asked one of his attendants, can you go get the chronicle, the history of my time as king, and recount all of the wonderful things that I have done and have happened during my reign. And so the attendant, you know, snuggles up next to him and starts reading. Xerxes in bed, starts reading the account. And as he's reading, it just so happens that he reads the story about how Mordecai foiled the assassination plot. And so Xerxes says, what did we ever do for old Morty? Like, how do we honor him? Like, we didn't. He's like, man, we need to fix that. We need to honor Mordecai. Just, just at that time, Haman's coming to go and ask Xerxes to put Mordecai to death. And so he strolls in, and the king says, I got a question for you, Haman. What should I do? There's a man I really want to honor. I delight in. How should I honor him? 
And of course, Haman's like, who would the king rather honor than me? And he says, you know what you should do? You should give him your robe. And you should give him your horse. And then you should give like your top officials. And they should parade him around the city. And Xerxes is like, I love that idea. There's this man, Mordecai. I don't know if you know him or you've ever met him. But he's sitting at the gate. Go find him. And he takes off his robe. And he's like, here's the robe. Here's the horse. And go lead him around the city. And so Haman has to go lead him around the city. He finishes. He goes home. (laughs) And his wife and friends who the night before were cheering him on, like, we're going to impale him like no one's been impaled before. They're like, oh. Seems like you're in trouble. Mordecai stands against you. You're surely going to fall. Let's see into chapter 6. And in it, we see Haman, the, the tragic case of Haman. And, and like I said, Haman, he's one of the best case studies in the Bible on the nature of pride. Now, pride is a word that we throw around a lot and Sometimes we use it in a positive way when we talk about the satisfaction we take in a job well done or delight that we have in our children. That's not what I'm talking about. The pride I'm speaking of and the pride that this story holds before us is what theologians and Christians throughout the ages have called the great sin, the sin that sits underneath every other sin. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is I want to talk about, number one, the essence of pride. What is pride? Two, I want to talk about what the real problem with pride is, why it's so destructive. And then three, I want to talk about the way out of it and the freedom of humility. But starting with the essence, I think a lot of us were like, well, I already know what pride is. Pride is being arrogant. It's being self, you know, like self-aggrandizing. It's, it's being conceited. And what I think this story illustrates that we see throughout the Bible is that pride is actually... The concept, it's deeper than that, and it's more nuanced and complex than that. But when you look at Haman, on the surface, Haman is absolutely full of himself. He forces others to bow before him. He throws a party to brag about all that he has. He isn't content to just kill Mordecai for the dishonor he's been shown. He wants to annihilate every Jew in every province in Persia to show like what dishonor and disrespect should, should come upon people like that. Uh, when Xerxes asks him, how should we honor the man that, how should I honor the man I delight in? He's like, well, here, here's what you should do. Just assumes that Xerxes is talking about him. At first glance, it seems like Haman is totally full of himself. It seems like he's really, really arrogant and conceited. But if we press in, we'll see that there's more going on. Take, for instance, the bowing. He commands everyone by order of Xerxes to bow before him. Well, Joyce Baldwin, she wrote a great little commentary on Esther, and in it she notes that in that culture, it was was expected that you would bow before any high-ranking official. And so it was automatic. It's like shaking hands or in the military offering a salute, that it was just, that's the way things were. You wouldn't need an order from the king. And so she She says, there seems to have been a general lack of respect for Haman. Otherwise, there should have been no need for a royal command that people should bow down to him. There's something so bad about him that he had to tell people, if you don't bow, the king, and they're like, okay, I'll I'll bow down to you. Even more, he has his party bragging about everything, all that he has, 
And yet he ends by saying, all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. I mean, think about that statement for a minute. I'm the second most powerful man in the world behind Xerxes. I have sons, I have wealth, I have power, I have influence, I have everything. Yet if this one relatively, like relative nobody, doesn't show me honor and respect, it's all worthless. And then when he decides that he's going to kill Mordecai, he can't just, he's not content just putting him to death. He's got he's to impale him on a stake that's 75 feet high. So the question is, is Haman full of himself or is he desperately insecure? And the answer, of course, is he's both. And that teaches us something very important about pride. Pride, it's not always arrogant. Sometimes it is. Pride goes deeper than that. And I don't think I can improve upon C.S. Lewis's definition, so I'll give you his definition of pride. He says pride is the ruthless sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. Pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. It's self-obsession. It's a person who all they think about are their wants and their desires, but also their image, their reputation, and their performance. It's not just Lewis who says this. We can go back. Luther, influenced by Augustine, one of the ways that he defines sin, he says sin is humanity curved in on itself, constantly looking at itself and obsessing over itself. This is what we see in Haman, right? Every time he appears in the story, everything's always about him. His view of life is that he's playing the central role and everyone else is playing a supporting part. And this is the essence of pride. It's self-obsession. Now, if you're tracking with me, you'll see that pride can actually show up in very different ways in our lives. Pastor Tim Keller, he helpfully notes that sometimes pride shows up with a sense of superiority, that we're focused on ourselves and we like what we see. And we compare to other people and we feel very, very good about ourselves. And so we can become arrogant or boastful, whatever. But pride can also at times show up with a sense of inferiority. That we're looking at ourselves and we don't like what we see. And so we beat ourselves up. We feel horrible about ourselves. We feel like we're not measuring up. We're incredibly self-conscious. And we don't typically think of that as pride. We actually sometimes in the church, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, we think that's humility. That's not humility. That's actually a form of pride. Looking at yourself and being obsessed with yourself, whether you're really happy or really sad, either way, the one thing they have in common is you're focused on yourself. And that's the essence of pride. And this is why Lewis says that pride is sleepless. Because a pride-filled life is a life of endless calculations and evaluations and assessments of yourself and where you stand. So you, you view everything through the lens of what, what will they do for me? What will I get out of it? What will that cost me? How will that make me look? Will I be appreciated? Am I being appreciated? How much am I being appreciated? Am I being overlooked? It's constant evaluation and endless calculation. Everything's run through a cost-benefit analysis. 
everything is evaluated in terms of optics. It's all about me. And when that comes into play, then it turns everything, including our relationships, into one big competition. As Lewis famously writes, he said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Or I would say sometimes even the misery of feeling below the rest. And so pride, it's self-obsession. It's thinking about yourself. It's obsessing about you. It's being curved in on yourself. That's the essence of it. And so what's the real problem with that? I know it might seem like a funny question to ask, but, but what's the real problem with living your, lives focus, your life focused in on yourself? Because God says you shouldn't. Yeah, but, but why? And of course, the answer is, as long as we spend our lives looking at ourselves, curved in, we can never actually look up to God to his promises, to what he's doing in this world. And we can never look around to see the people that he's called us to serve and the needs that we can step into. When we're staring at ourselves, we're unwilling to look up or around. And we end up viewing everyone and everything as a means to a greater end of who we are personally. You guys with me on that? That's where it's not just arrogance. Even if you spend all day, every day feeling horrible about yourself, that's actually one way that you can keep from really serving others or living into the call God puts on your life. And I want to be sensitive when I say that because if you're already a hyper self-critical person, me saying that's pride too, that could totally spin you out more. And I don't want that to be the case. But I do want you to see that that is not the life God has for you. Now, because this is Father's Day, I want to take this message and I want to speak directly to fathers in this room, but the principles apply to all of us. Whether you're a dad, whether you're a mom, whether you're single, whether you're a teenager, the principle applies that God has called us to live our lives, not for our own sake, but for the sake of him and other people. Now, one of the greatest challenges of fatherhood it's learning to die to our pride. It's learning to die to ourselves so that we might offer our lives on behalf of other people, so that we might give them away in service to our wife, to our kids, to our church, to our God. And that's really, really difficult. It's really challenging. But that's the essence. I mean, that's what we celebrate on Father's Day, right? On Father's Day, what we celebrate are dads who gave so much of themselves, their time, their money, their energy, their attention, their affection. They poured themselves out for us to make us better, to raise us up. And that's why the wounds that people carry on Father's Day are often very different than the wounds on Mother's Day. It's a dad who didn't do that. A dad who was focused on himself or his career, who didn't have time. So the question becomes, how do we actually... How do we navigate the challenge? How do we grow to being people who can, and men in particular, and fathers in particular, 
How do we become the kind of men who willingly give our lives away in service of others? Well, I read a book about five years ago, four or five years ago. I don't agree with everything in the book. It's necessary to claim, disclaimer. It was written by a Catholic uh, named Ronald Rollheiser, but the book's called Sacred Fire, and there are parts of the book that probably been more influential in my own growth than almost anything I've read in the last five years. And in Sacred Fire, what he does is he offers a helpful paradigm for understanding spiritual development. He, he holds forth three stages of development in the life of a Christian, and he says the first stage of development is what he calls basic discipleship. And the tagline of that, that stage, he says, is learning to get your life together. Now, usually this stage of development happens in your teens, 20s, and maybe into your 30s. And it's in this stage of life that, you know, you get an education, you move out of your parents' home, you get a job, you determine what your vocation's going to be, you determine if you're going to get married, maybe who you're going to get married to, or are you going to have kids. You build a home. You get your life together. And he says the next stage, which is usually starts, you know, late 20s, mid-30s, and then goes up into your 70s and maybe even your 80s, is he calls that mature discipleship. And he says that stage of life is giving your life away. That's the call God puts on your life in that season. And then the last stage, he says, is learning to give your death away. And that usually hits you in your 80s. And what Rollheiser points out in the book is, by far the longest period of our lives, if God grants us the years, is that middle stage, that giving our lives away, but it's also the hardest. And I think it's harder for us than it is for a lot of generations before us. Because for many of us, not all of us, I'm speaking, I'm generalizing here, but for many of us, your teens into, especially if you went away to college, and then your 20s, they're pretty, like, carefree. You don't think they are at the time. I remember, you know, when my wife and I were first married, I felt like we had so many responsibilities because we had to pay our bills on time and we had a dog we had to let out. I'll never forget one time, my wife's like, hey, the water's not working. And it's June, so the pipes aren't frozen. I'm like, I wonder what's going on. I'm like walking around the house trying to figure it out. I call them, hey, the water's not working. Well, you didn't pay your bill. Oh, man, I got to pay bills? I got to keep up on this? Can't they just trust me? It seemed like a lot. The dog would wake up and have to let him out. Gosh, this is exhausting. <laughs> but I look back now, and those were some easy years for the most part. Right? We go out with friends all the time. And then before you know it, before we knew it, and before many of you know it, what happens is you, you find yourself in that second stage where you have a ton of responsibilities and duties. And they're kind of just, they all kind of appear rather rapidly. And you're not prepared for it. And because you're living in this life of getting your life together and you kind of live for yourself here, getting to this place where you start to give your life away, that's really, really challenging. And I think it's one of the greatest challenges in our culture and one of the greatest challenges in the church in our day. Is you have a whole bunch of people who think something's wrong because they have duties and responsibilities. They think that they've screwed up somehow or they've taken a wrong path because now life requires them to give their lives away. And they want to go back. I hear that a lot. If I could go back to college, if I could go back to those days instead of stepping into what God has before us today. Rollheiser writes about this season 
of duties and obligations. He says, in this season, I'm going to quote him extensively here. He says, the supper gets cooked only if we do the cooking and the mortgage gets paid only if we earn the money. We are in charge. We are responsible. We carry the car keys, the house keys, and the debt for both. The major load is on our shoulders, and sometimes it feels as if we are on a treadmill with no way of stepping off. Consequently, all too often, despite the privilege of being young, being healthy, and being in charge, it is easy to feel burdened, taken for granted, unappreciated, and used by others. Does that resonate with anyone here? It's the challenge. It's like you wake up, you go to work, you come home, you do more work, you're exhausted, you go to bed, and then you do it again the next day and the next day. And it's really easy, and, and I sense this a lot, and in counseling and talking with people, I see this, that feeling of being burdened or taken for granted or being unappreciated or being used by others. Rollheiser says all of these negative feelings can weigh us down for long periods of time during our adult years. And they can make us fall asleep to something that we will, we will wake up to only when it is too late. Namely, that these years when we are young and healthy and in charge are the best years of our lives. There's something worse than having too much to do, and that is having nothing to do or too little to do of importance. We will be a lot more awake to that fact when we sit in a retirement home, stripped of youth, health, and our car keys, knowing that all those years when we thought we were being taken for granted were years of privilege that were laden with potential for joy that, because of our unawareness of privilege, we never quite picked up upon. I think everything Rollheiser is saying there can be summed up in the words of Jesus, who in Acts 20 said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I know you've probably heard that since you were a kid, many of you, and so that saying can sound kind of trite, but I'm convinced that one of the, the real struggles of discipleship is learning to believe that what Jesus said is true. It's learning to believe that it is better to give your life away than it is to have others give their life away for you. And I know of no other verse that confronts our pride more than that one. See, pride tells us it's better to take, to achieve, or to make a name for yourself. Pride, pride tells you that all of the duties and responsibilities, they're weighing you down and holding you back. Pride tells you that others are using you and you're being taken for granted. Pride fills you with anger and resentment instead of a spirit of gratitude at all that God has given you. It's pride that tells us that you should, tells you, tells us that we should embrace our truth, whatever that means. Do whatever makes you happy. Live for yourself. And it's even celebrated in our day. And pride, this relentless obsession with self, it always ends in a fall. It always ends in a fall. Pride destroys relationships, it destroys families, and it destroys lives. And the reason why is because God has hardwired this kind of like kill switch with pride, that you can roll with it for so long, but eventually he's going to shut it down. And the reason he's going to shut it down is because you are not living in line with reality. When we put ourselves at the center of the universe, we wreak havoc because we do not belong there. It's not ultimately just about you or me. We are creatures. God is the creator. We are his servants. He is the king. 
And when we continually try to live as if we are at the center of the universe, God will, in his grace you know, and patience, maybe let you do that for a while, but eventually a fall is going to come. Eventually, he's going to bring you low. And that's why there are warning after warning after warning in the Bible about this. Both James and Peter quote, offer the quote, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. For both of them to use it, it makes it seem like that was one of the, the talking points of the early church. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Mary, in her song, she talks about how God scatters the proud. In Psalm 138, we're told that God draws near to the humble, but he keeps the prideful at a distance. He knows them from afar. And what we see here in Esther chapters 5, 6, and 7 is we see what the fall looks like. Haman his pride's his undoing. And God eventually gives him what he has coming to him. He's forced to lead Mordecai around the city on the king's steed and in the king's robe. And eventually, Haman is executed on the very stake that he had prepared for Mordecai. It's a vivid and brutal picture that pride always comes before the fall. And so the challenge is, okay, we know what pride is. We know why it's destructive. We can probably think of people right now. Some of you in your head, you're thinking of, hey, I know someone who really needs to hear this. If that's you, pride comes before the fall. Let that be a warning, right? And so the question is, okay, what's the answer? How do we respond? How do we live lives of humility? And like pride, humility is a word that's often misunderstood. C.S. Lewis in, in the screw tape letters shows us how one of Satan's real tactics in, in our world, in our community, is he takes good words that convey good concepts and he twists them in our mind. And like pride, he does that with humility. A lot of times we think humility is self-denigration. As Lewis writes, he says that, you know, Satan wants us to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they are ugly or clever men trying to believe they are fools. And really, that's a, a brilliantly evil strategy. Because if you are an attractive person, but you think, no, being humble means I need to say and believe that I'm really unattractive or I'm not smart or whatever it is, that's going to be hard for you to believe because it's not in line with reality, but you're, you're trying to convince yourself. And so every time you look in the mirror, what are you doing? You're talk and before you know it, you're just focused in on yourself, and he wins. You're still thinking about yourself. And of course, as long as we're focused on ourselves, we're unable to put our focus upon God and our neighbors. See, true humility, as Lewis notes, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. True humility is pulling out of that curve. And it's, a, it's marked by a real self-forgetfulness where you actually just don't think about yourself and how you're doing and how you're performing. I would say that, that self-forgetfulness is what we see develop in Mordecai and Esther in chapters 4, 5, and 6 and beyond. You know, in 4, Esther, at one point, she's thinking, what's this going to do? I, I'm risking my life. And then she, she pulls out of it. And she's, she's not even concerned about herself anymore. Instead, she's just going to do good for the people that God put in her path. That's what real humility is. 
It's when you forget yourself so that you can serve others. Now, growing in that's challenging. Hopefully you're seeing why that's challenging. I mean, I could give you like, are you a, a test? Are you prideful? And I could give you like a checklist of 10 things. Are you prideful? And you could, you could follow through it, right? <laughs> and then at the end, you would say, I am prideful. What do I do? You know, but you're focused on yourself. Or I could give you five steps to growing in humility, you know, and then you're, you're starting to think, all right, here's what I'm going to do here, here, and here. And I actually think that's one of the real problems in a lot of our churches is we teach and we train people to constantly be examining themselves. And don't hear me wrong. There are times you need to examine yourself. Paul says to think of yourself with sober judgment. You are not called to obsess over yourself. And when that happens in churches, whether you, you're obsessing and feeling like you're a worm or you're obsessing and feeling like you're great, either way, you're obsessing over yourself and you're not able to actually look up and look around. If we're really going to grow in humility, we got to do deeper work than just here are the five things to do and here's the questions to ask yourself and the, the test to put yourself through. We have to actually do deeper work than that. I'm convinced through the scriptures, through books that I've read, through the life that I've lived, relationships I have in my own personal experience. I'm convinced, you know, when I was younger, I thought pride was this evil thing over here and then insecurity was over here. I'm convinced they're two sides of the same coin. And I'm convinced that they both find their origin back in the garden after Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And I'm convinced that the only way we can pull ourselves out of our self-obsession and our pride is through dealing with our own insecurity and our shame. You know, Adam and Eve, after they ate the fruit, what was the first thing that they wanted to do, they tried to do, was to hide. They run, and then they cover themselves in fig leaves. Because they both felt this sense that, and it was true because of sin, they felt this sense that there's something really wrong with me, and so I need to cover myself. Now, we feel that too. That's why we always wear clothes. But it's also why we, we want to accomplish and make a name for ourselves. We want to cover, we want to deal with this insecurity in some way of saying, no, 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 I've really arrived, I've achieved, look at me, look at what I've done. But it doesn't work. But we feel it so bad. We feel that need for a covering. And that's why I find it so interesting that Haman, who is so insecure, so needs to be honored, so needs approval, when Xerxes says, hey, how should I delight or honor the person I delight in? Isn't it fascinating that he says, you should give that man your robe? You know, that might get lost on us a little bit. We don't wear robes typically, um, except around the house, but that was a highly significant thing in that day. You actually can read about it different times throughout the scriptures. So if you go to Genesis 42, after Joseph helps save Egypt, what does Pharaoh do? He gives him his robe. Giving him his robe, he says, you are a part of my kingdom and I delight in you. And you, you know, I am with you, I'm covering you. And then in 1 Samuel 18, Jonathan, who, you know, by blood had the right to Saul's throne, he's with David, and you know what he does? He takes off his robe, and he gives it to David, saying, I'm giving you my inheritance, I'm giving you my love and my support. 
I'm behind you. So too with Haman. He thinks, if I could just get the king's robe, if I had that kind of love and respect and honor, I'd be set free. Here's the thing. I don't think Haman asked for the wrong thing. I think he asked the wrong king. Like Haman wanting love, honor, glory, security, a covering, I don't think that's wrong. I think that's the deepest need we have as human beings. I think Haman's real problem is that he went to Xerxes who could never give it to him. We do need something to cover us. That's the only way we can be set free. I mean, think about it. When are you the most self-forgetful? I'll tell you when it is for me. It's not when I'm standing in front of four or 500 people. Very self-conscious, you know? When are you most self-forgetful? It's when you're surrounded by people you love, right? You feel safe. It's when you put on the sweatpants, you don't comb your hair, you know, you don't necessarily pay attention to a whole lot. Of, you don't even think about it because you're with the people you love, and so you feel safe. We need that through all of life. We need to feel that sense of security and safety. And that's the promise that's held forth to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a story about a son who dishonors his dad asks for the inheritance early, runs away, and does a bunch of dumb things. And then he comes back, and, you know, he's got his speech prepared for the father. And he's like, if you'll let me work for you as a servant, here's all the things I'll do. Here's what I will achieve. Here's how I will make up for what I've done. And what does the father say? What's the first thing he says? Shh, go get a robe and put it on him. Get my robe and put it on him. And that's the hope of the gospel is that the Father, the creator of all, even though we are sinful, even though we are so self-centered so often, the Father willingly gave his Son, and the Son willingly went to the cross so that by the power of the Spirit, we might be clothed in his righteousness. We might have the Father's delight. And when we know that the Father delights in us, then we stop obsessing about how we're doing or not doing. You know, it's almost become cliche and it's almost a joke these days to talk about daddy issues or father wounds, but there's something very real and very deep there that so many people carry around so much because they don't feel like their dad really blessed them or honored them. But all of that, all of that doesn't find its origin in your father, although there's a lot there, and I don't want to minimize that. That finds this, that traces all the way back to what happened in Genesis 3 with the fall. That we lost the benediction because of sin and we live our lives trying to achieve it, trying to find it. And God holds it forth to us in Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, when you know that you're loved and you're secure in him, that's when you're able to give your life away. And you don't think about it, you don't congratulate yourself, you're just, you're able to do it. And I bet if you think and you've been around the church, you can point to people that do that well. And so, particularly to the fathers in this room, so many men in our culture, they're trying to to find a robe. They're putting on the robe of, you know, success, achievement. What have you accomplished? How many companies did you start? How much money do you have? Maybe it's more nefarious. It's affairs. You think, like, in doing that, you're going to make a name. You're You're not. 
the most important work you can do is ground yourself in the love of Christ. Put yourself under his lordship. And then you can actually forget about yourself and whatever God's calling is on your life, you can step into with joy. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of the covering that Jesus offers us. Because on the night of his betrayal, he took a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. It's broken for your sin. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup, the cup of the new covenant, my blood poured out for you. And in both of these pictures, Jesus is trying to say, I've come to give you a covering. I've come to forgive you. But even more, I've come to give you new life. We're saved by grace, not by works. But the grace we're saved by leads us into a life where we pour ourselves out for others. And we do that not to earn, but just to respond and to join God in his work in this world. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to come and to eat and to drink, to celebrate what Christ has done for you. If you need to confess sin, you can do that. If you need to examine yourself, you can do that. But don't get lost in the cul-de-sac of self-examination. Recognize that Christ has given his body and his blood for you so that you might go and give your life for others. Let me pray.